Hey, listener, this is producer Anya Profumo. It's been a really long time since you've heard from us here at Should This Exist, but we have something new to share that we've been working on. When I travel for work, I often find myself caught in a blur of meetings and hotel rooms, missing out on the inspiring experiences that are taking place in the city that I'm visiting. I'm sure this is an experience many of us can relate to. Well, I've got a new podcast for you that changes that. It's called Offsite Adventures, and it allows you to turn a simple work trip into an unforgettable adventure. In each episode, we reveal hidden gems in the most iconic business travel destinations. The stories you hear replenish your mind and spirit. Adventure can fit into any schedule, no matter how busy. We'll show you how to go and find it. Just search Offsite Adventures in your favorite podcast player and hit that follow button. The show is presented in alliance with Capital One Business. Excited for you to listen. Kidney disease can be very silent until it's reached its chronic level. Hi, it's Katerina. Roughly 37 million Americans are living with chronic kidney disease. That's about one in seven. I was diagnosed and immediately went on dialysis. It was like entering a little mini horror story. Almost 750,000 of these patients are facing end-stage renal disease, where their kidneys no longer function well enough to sustain life on their own. What they said is, if you don't start dialysis within a year, you'll be dead. So I go to the dialysis clinic. There's alarms blaring from the machines, huge machines like refrigerators with tubes hanging out of them. Half of them look like they're in comas, a lot of moaning. It was the most traumatic experience of my life. Dialysis machines can act as a kind of surrogate kidney, filtering waste from a patient's blood. But the process isn't quick or easy. A single session of dialysis can take three or four hours. Patients may have to go to multiple sessions a week, and dialysis treatment can go on for years, even decades. Time on the machine is scarce. You can't spend 10 hours a day on the dialysis machine. Otherwise, what are you living for? What are you going to do? You can't check into the dialysis hotel for the rest of your life. There are alternatives to dialysis, organ transplant. Nearly 100,000 patients, the sickest of the sick, are waiting for a transplant, but fewer than one in five of them will ever find a kidney donor. Dr. Bill Fussell at Vanderbilt Medical Center knows all too well that the odds aren't good. And so patients gradually melt away. It's like lighting a candle. And it just gets shorter and shorter and shorter until it's gone. And so our goal is to get rid of the scarcity model. For the last 50 years, there's been shockingly little innovation in dialysis. A dialysis machine is the size of a small refrigerator, but Fussell is working on an alternative. Our artificial kidney is the size of a coffee cup. Dr. Shuvo Roy works at the University of California, San Francisco. Together, he and Bill Fussell are working at the intersection of engineering and biology to free those with chronic kidney disease from being tethered to a dialysis machine or pinning their futures on the organ donor lottery. They're designing the world's first implantable bioartificial kidney. This coffee cup-sized device cleanses the blood while living kidney cells operate just as an ordinary kidney would. Making it mimic life, nature. Although I think we are all 
humble enough to know that nature is so much more sophisticated to get to that level is going to be a continuous learning process mm. and i think we can do it i think we've shown that we can do it and i would like to see dialysis machines in a museum as a relic but is its promise as a life-changing device enough to bring it to market would access to a bioartificial kidney be universal or simply another treatment highlighting the disparity between the rich and the poor Would there be repercussions to the human donor market we can't yet predict? And is an implantable device just another Band-Aid for kidney disease? I'm Katerina Fake. How is technology impacting our humanity? It's the question of our times. I made a discovery that was literally unimagined by any human being. There's a sort of a creepiness where somebody is really mistaking the tech for being real. Trust me, that stuff is going on. Penetrating the consciousness in the technology space and the public. This is a show where we take a single technology and ask what's its greatest potential. I mean, really exciting things. Enormously complex. And what could possibly go wrong? We're just looking at each other thinking, oh my God. The future is in our hands. I'm honestly sort of on the fence. Our boldest new technologies can help us flourish as human beings. Now it's accelerating. Absolutely. Or destroy the very thing that makes us human. I I don't have any doubt. We have to become more informed. Because what I like to say is any technology in human history is neutral. It's how we decide to use it. Failure is not an option. It is not an option. This is Should This Exist? Hi, we're back. Exploring the potential for a bioartificial kidney where innovation goes back for more than a century. The evolution of the artificial kidney, the first true vital artificial organ, is a story of the kinds of challenges that only the human body can present and the kinds of creative solutions only the human mind could devise. The first dialysis machines came on the scene in the mid-1940s during World War II. A Dutch physician named Willem Kolf used sausage skins, orange juice cans, and a washing machine to cobble together a device that could filter toxins out of blood. Twenty years later, the first patient received ongoing dialysis. Vanderbilt nephrologist Dr. Bill Fussell sees dialysis as a phenomenal step forward, mistaken for crossing the finish line. Fundamentally, it's a minor miracle. This is the first technology, dialysis, that replaces a failed vital organ. Up until the 1970s, when dialysis really became a standard of care for renal failure, if your kidneys failed, you died. And I think that we were so impressed with ourselves for having done that, that we didn't necessarily keep looking beyond. Has the process of dialysis improved in the past half century? Yes, but only incrementally. So what you're saying is basically there has not been any innovation in kidney dialysis for like 50 years or more. That is correct. And contrast that with a pacemaker defibrillator. Dr. Shuvo Roy is a bioengineer at UCSF. He's also Bill Fissell's partner on the Kidney Project. It turns out the first pacemakers were also developed in the 60s. It was the size of a refrigerator. And today, a defibrillator, you know, the size of a silver dollar, a dialysis machine has shrunk from the size of a large, big, clunky refrigerator to, at best, the size of an office under-the-desk type refrigerator that it is today. 
Currently, the best treatment for kidney failure is a kidney transplant, but it's hardly a simple process. Even successful procedures require immunosuppressive drugs with potentially lethal complications, like blood clots and the risk of failure or rejection of the donated kidney. And that's if a patient can get a donor kidney in the first place. For most patients, dialysis is the only real option. And after five years of dialysis, a patient's chance of survival is only 35%. I'll just put this in perspective. If you look across cancers, except for lung and pancreatic cancer, dialysis patients have a worse survival rate than all the other cancer patients. Dr. Roy has a PhD in electrical engineering. It's a course of study that typically doesn't involve kidneys at all. But 20 years ago, Shuvo Roy met Bill Fussell, who was finishing up his nephrology fellowship. The two of them had been separately dragged to what, by all accounts, was a pretty boring office party. So I was just kind of sitting there twiddling my thumbs, and I see a man standing over by the food table, and he's not talking to anybody either. So I walk over there and say hello, and that person turns out to be Shuvo Roy. Vassell says that meeting was 100% serendipity, but resulted in a decades-long collaboration across the country. Like Dr. Roy, Bill Fussell didn't start out in nephrology. He majored in physics at MIT and took a break from his studies to work as an EMT in Boston. Back then, dialysis was still pretty novel, and it was common for kidney patients to be transported to dialysis sessions by ambulance. And I remember there was one woman, her first name was Mary, who we would transport three times a week. Mary was incessantly short of breath. She had enough bone demineralization, and so she wore a halo. She had a titanium bracket that was bolted to her skull that held her head up off of her shoulders because her cervical vertebrae had collapsed. Seeing Mary regularly led to a kind of friendship between Bill and her, but then his schedule changed for a few months. And then I got back on that shift again and picked her up, and she says, Hi, Bill. We're driving. And she asks me how I've been, asks me, are you still dating that girl, and so on. And it was like a lightning bolt that this woman, in the context of crushing disease morbidity, has the personality and the interest and the liveliness to take interest in somebody else. If she can do that, I can do anything. Bill Fussell says he traces his revelation to that moment, seeing the desperate unmet needs of patients like Mary. They're soldiering on. They want a little more life. They want a little more time with their grandchildren. They want a little more time to read or write poetry or paint pictures. And we can do better. We have to do better for these people. So Bill says goodbye to physics and heads to medical school. But then, while he's studying for his medical board exam, he has a eureka moment. I was on call, I was in the hospital, and I was dog-tired, and I was studying for my boards. And I was studying kidney physiology because I wasn't really all that good at it. I was staring at pictures of the kidney's filters. The cells Bill was staring at were familiar. He had seen structures with the same size and shape while working on an X-ray telescope at MIT. 
that broke up light from distant galaxies into a small array of gold bars for astronomers to analyze. And that's when the first epiphany happened, that maybe we could change the underlying technology. The underlying technology fueling Fissel's device is something called silicon nanotechnology. It's the same technology that's used by the computer industry to make microchips. The chips made ideal filters and, with a few tweaks, potentially viable replacement kidneys. And I put my pack on my back and I went around the country looking for nephrology fellowships. And I think most places that I interviewed where I said, my goal is to make an implantable artificial kidney using silicon nanotechnology, if I had announced to them that my career goal was to be a grizzly bear, they would have greeted me with no less astonishment and bemusement. It really was not a concept that was on anybody's radar, technology development for kidney failure. Eventually, Bill meets Dr. David Humes at the University of Michigan, who is one of the very few people working on technology development for kidney failure. And he gets his fellowship and a mentor. Now, years later, his idea is coming to fruition with Shuvo Roy. So we call it the bio-artificial kidney because it consists of a module that filters blood very much like the kidney does, but couple that with kidney cells. So we are mimicking the architecture and the function of a healthy kidney with the bio-artificial kidney. Dialysis patients have to have extremely restricted diets. They even have to regulate how much water they drink because they have no way to get rid of it except for dialysis, which washes their blood of two or three days' worth of fluid and waste. In between those dialysis sessions, toxins in their blood can build to dangerously high levels. It's like a Cedar Point or a Six Flags roller coaster. The toxins build up and build up and build up, and then suddenly, boom, you drop. Fasel and Roy's implantable bioartificial kidney has a simple yet important goal, to mimic the natural actions of a real kidney. Their device operates with a patient's blood flow, powered by the patient's own heart. So by using a bioartificial kidney that does continuous treatments, meaning removes toxins continuously, mm-hmm. does the volume and electrolyte balancing automatically allows the patient to eat and drink more normally. And no longer the 12-hour sessions, you <laughs> know, eating and drinking normally, you can travel. That's right. I mean, it sounds as if it's transformative, completely transformative. And it's engineered with filters to avoid triggering blood clots, a challenge for all patients with long-term implants. Another key benefit, it's cost. Dialysis And end-stage renal disease in this country is a very unique disease in the sense that it's the one condition that's paid for by Medicare, no matter what age you are. Mm -hmm. So the cost of hemodialysis to Medicare is around $90,000 per patient annually. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the total bucket of costs, it exceeds $35 billion. It's about 7% of Medicare for 1% of its population. Wow. So say that a bioartificial kidney became the norm, how much would that lower the costs? If we were to scale up production 
and take advantage of all the economy of scale, we could provide the bioartificial kidney to the quote unquote the market at less than twenty thousand dollars. Well, okay. But scaling up comes with its own set of challenges and risks. Dr. Bill Fissell says pushing the bioartificial kidney beyond human trials will be expensive. We have a big valley to cross, the so-called valley of death. When we've made the seminal, the germinal establishment that we can do this, how do we get from there to making our innovations available to patients? Most of the products that are coming to market, they're all about a half a billion dollars of investment to get there. And who has that money? Selling the idea to a giant in the industry worries Bill Fussell. There is a, a kill zone around the giants in the field, I think. There's always a risk when you lose that governance and control of the technology that it might be sold to some entity that wants to kill it that wants to put it on a shelf. After the break, we'll talk with patients living with end-stage renal disease, not only about their hopes for how a bioartificial kidney can transform their lives, but about what other questions we should be raising before widespread adoption of such a device. Hi, it's Katerina, and we're back talking about the bioartificial kidney and its potential as a breakthrough for patients currently relying on dialysis. Right now, it's hard to see a downside, unless you're part of the multi-billion dollar dialysis industry who might see their business model become obsolete. Or if you just don't have time to wait. The coronavirus outbreak has brought dialysis services in New York to a breaking point. Patients with chronic kidney disease are already vulnerable with a life-threatening illness and recently have been hit hard by COVID-19. Now major hospitals across New York are reporting shortages of crucial dialysis equipment. Although COVID is a respiratory disease, it can cause what's known as a cytokine storm in patients, a potentially fatal side effect that overwhelms a patient's kidneys. I am not an alarmist. I'm, all, I'm probably one of the calmest people you'll ever meet. I've actually almost had panic attacks lately. Nilcha Gedney is a dialysis patient living in West Virginia. We spoke during the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak. Receiving dialysis in large facilities with dozens of other people could also easily expose patients to the virus. It's very frightening. And the kidney population often have comorbid diseases like diabetes with their kidney disease. So we're very vulnerable. And for us, it's almost certainly a death sentence. Nilcha's advocacy for improved kidney treatment options predates COVID-19. She's an officer of Home Dialyzers United, speaking for the 7% of patients who are able to do dialysis in their own homes. The first time she heard about the transformative potential of the bioartificial kidney, she was at a conference listening to a lecturer whose name you already know. Dr. Shivo Roy. I was blown away. I, I had just started dialysis. I knew very little about it, except that I did not want a transplant. For Nilcha, a transplant would mean taking immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of her life and an unpredictable outcome. 
And here he was talking about no immunosuppressive drugs, something that was uh, minimally invasive. And I went up to Shivo afterwards and I said, oh my gosh, you have just given patients so much hope. And he looked at me and said, this isn't hope, this is a reality. My dream, which I think represents the, the renal community, is patient choice. There will always be patients who want, a, say, a living donor organ, maybe from a family member. You have someone like myself who would never take a living organ, but would take an implantable. When it comes to dialysis, again, there's no one machine that works for everybody. While Nilch's excitement about new treatments is about patient choice, for others, it's about one thing, peace of mind. It would really, to me, be the ultimate freedom. It would alleviate recurring fears. John Brandon Baton has had every form of treatment available. Dialysis in clinics, dialysis in his home, and two separate transplants. The first one failed. And so it's always in the back of your mind that this could fail again. I mean, I know some people who are on their third and some on their fourth transplant. John is based in Washington, D.C. and was diagnosed in his early 30s when he ended up in the ER and went directly to dialysis. For somebody who's been through as many treatments as John, the bioartificial kidney represents something new. Hope. Fingers crossed that it doesn't happen that the transplant I currently have fails, that there is a more viable alternative than waiting on a waiting list. And praying. As hopeful as John is, his imagination is able to play out other scenarios. As a self-proclaimed sci-fi nerd, it's not hard for John to see how the noble intentions behind the bioartificial kidney could be hijacked by some sort of supervillain. The supervillain version is only those with influence and or the necessary funds will be will have access to it. And people in vulnerable communities, people of color, immigrants, people who may not have the financial means to, you know, to be put first in line are going to be adversely impacted by it. Remember, Bill Fassell and Shuva Roy anticipate their bioartificial kidney being far more affordable than dialysis, once it scales. Until then, there are valid concerns that early prototypes might only be available to the well-off. I think there's a hopefulness among medical professionals and biotech developers that if we can create enough things, then we will be able to solve our problems. And I think I, um, I disagree. <laughs> Dr. Crystal Clayville is a chaplain at the University of Chicago Medical Center who works with kidney transplant patients. She's also got a PhD in religious ethics, which gives her a unique perspective on the bioartificial kidney. It solves a scarcity problem. But of course, you still have the fact that transplant teams want to put kidneys into good patients, people who are going to be able to work with them and um, maximize their own survival. And I don't think that the artificial kidney changes that dynamic. Crystal's relationship with the kidney transplant patients she works with is intimate. She spends some of her time in committee with surgeons and transplant teams working to evaluate the donor wait list. But she also counsels patients awaiting transplants or those who have just received a kidney from a donor. They have any number of questions like, what will my new life be like? I've been tethered to this dialysis machine for a very long time. 
And then there are questions that are more existential. Like, I've just realized that somebody has to die for me to live. And then if they have living donors, there are other kinds of concerns that pop up. Like, are they asking too much? Can they ever repay it? Will they feel like they owe this person something more than they could ever give back? She believes a bioartificial kidney could help resolve these and other questions without clear answers, like the debate about organ transplantations from religious groups who actively oppose it. Some object to transplants from deceased donors. Others protest that it might impede the life or hasten the death of the living donor. I think artificial kidneys help us in religion reframe how we think about organ transplant. It's not necessarily just about definitions of death, right? But if the religious traditions can start thinking about organs as not scarce, then potentially there's a way to move the conversation to thinking about allocation and access to transplant. I mean, I think the utopia is trying to decrease the need for kidney transplants by actually treating kidney disease (laughs) earlier, right? And then there would be potentially a decrease in the number of people who needed kidney transplants as this sort of heroic intervention. Meantime, the data shows kidney disease is only on the rise, with increased incidence of the leading causes, diabetes and high blood pressure. These findings only heighten the value of early recognition of kidney disease and preventive strategies for patients. And what we have had is a disease-oriented focus rather than a patient-centered focus. And the problem is that dialysis makes money and it decreases the incentive to try and really prevent people from developing kidney disease. Dr. Alvin Moss is director of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Law, at West Virginia University and chair for the Coalition of Supportive Care of Kidney Patients. What about a bioartificial kidney? I am sure people will come out of the woodwork to think this is a fantastic idea, knowing that there are 100, 110, 120,000 new patients a year, huge market, we can charge an arm and a leg for it, and we're going to then totally miss the emphasis on prevention that we really should have. It's much easier to come up with some new technology, very expensive technology that makes some people a lot of money, but doesn't really comprehensively deal with the problem. In his 40 years as a nephrologist, Dr. Moss was the medical director of a dialysis unit for two decades, where he watched many of his patients suffer. That led him to do a fellowship in medical ethics and then to hospice and palliative medicine, where he helps patients at the end of their lives who voluntarily make the decision to stop dialysis. I mean, I have patients would love to not be saddled to a dialysis machine for four hours, three times a week. So if the bioartificial kidney helped them feel better, that would be wonderful, but it's not as good a solution as a a national program that identified 80 to 90% of people who have the potential of going into end-stage kidney disease and stopped the progression of their disease so that they would never need dialysis. That would be even better. Coming up on Should This Exist, kidneys aren't the only organs being recreated by scientists. Researchers are working on artificial hearts, livers, lungs, and more. 
Is there something lost when humans become more and more bionic? Hi, it's Katerina, and I'm talking to Dr. Shuvo Roy at UCSF about the long view, not just for the bioartificial kidney, but for other similar devices as well. Do you ever think about how, you know, building these kinds of devices might lead us towards being kind of like more technological people, being more, you know, I don't know, cyborgs? Do you think about that? I don't know if you're familiar with the old, uh, you know, six million dollar man or uh-huh. three million dollar yeah. woman movies or shows. So people have come to me and in the emails that I'll get, I'll get things. You know, how is the bionic kidney? And the same platform that allows us to build the artificial kidney can be applied to other organ systems. So yes, once you think in terms of combining cells with electronics with mechanical components, you create more and more bionic organs. And a few years ago. There was actually a program on in the UK on television where they actually went around the world asking for prototypes from different groups, companies, and labs to create. You know what they called at the time was the most complete artificial human being. For the record, the series was called "How to Build a Bionic Man." In London, packages are arriving from all over the world. That box has the the hand that goes with my elbow. Ah, okay. Let's have a look at the hand. Nice. Leading biomedical innovators have donated the most sophisticated prosthetic parts available. No one has ever attempted to combine them into a single functioning body before. So, from our lab, they got a prototype model of the kidney. From somebody else, they got an electronic eye. From somebody else, they got a heart and a lung, and they're able to put all that together for the TV show and show that you know, yes, it is possible to think at least more bionically. Whether that's going to happen in our lifetime, I don't know. Does that appeal to you? I mean, like it sounds like an interesting show, to be honest. So, as an engineer, yeah, I think it's fascinating because you're bringing you know fundamentals, mathematics, physics, chemistry to bear on problems and creating. Something that did not exist before, making it mimic life, mimic nature. Although I think we are all humble enough to know that nature is so much more sophisticated. To get to that level is going to be a continuous learning process.、Mm. We are basically at the beginning of that cycle. We don't know what we don't know. Though bionic humans may become commonplace someday, Shuvo Roy and his collaborator, Dr. Bill Fussell. Have concrete next steps to take for their bioartificial kidney. At the end of last year, their project marked a major milestone. They successfully implanted prototype bioartificial kidneys into pigs without immune reaction or blood clotting. The next step is human trials, and there's already a long list of patients ready to participate. I'd like to see the first of our devices tested in a human patient this calendar year. In five years. I hope that we're a commercial entity that patients can select if it suits them. In ten years, I hope that we've got a technology available where, when a patient develops kidney failure, comes to the doctor's office, they can walk out with a real kidney from a donor or a fake kidney that we designed and marketed. 
Bill Fussell started his work by hoping he could relegate dialysis to an exhibit in a museum. So it's funny, or maybe just fitting, that he wants the same thing for himself. 20 years from now, I hope that I'm an irrelevant footnote in history, to be honest with you. I hope that developments in medical science put me and everything I've done out of business and just render us a, a, you know, a, an odd historical footnote. Look, I don't get to decide should this exist, and neither does this show. Our goal is to inspire you to ask that question and the intriguing questions that grow from it. What I say is all the rich people can buy their bionic kidneys to leave more kidneys for people that can't afford them. And then everybody wins. My dad is on dialysis. This could change people's lives. It could change my life. I am not afraid of bionic organs. We already have them. I don't see why the kidney should feel left out. What are the trials? Is the testing safe? What are the long-term side effects? And how do you even know? The dialysis industry is huge. If this really solves dialysis, I wonder if the dialysis industry is going to get in the way of it. Is this the first step of creating an artificial human being? How could we improve upon the human organs we already have? Is there a way to make a kidney more efficient by making it bionic? Is there a way to make a liver better by making it bionic? Agree? Disagree? You might have perspectives that are completely different from what we've shared so far. We want to hear them. To tell us the questions you're asking, go to shouldthisexist.com, where you can record a message for us. And join the Should This Exist newsletter at shouldthisexist.com. I'm Katerina Fake. Should This Exist is a Wait What original. The series is produced with generous support of Omijar Network, a social change venture working to ensure technology is safe, fair, and compassionate, and a world in which individuals have the social, economic, and democratic power to thrive. The series is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Robin Wise is our technical director. Ben Hicks is recording engineer for Disher Sound. Danielle Roth is our assistant producer. Catherine Winter, consulting editor. And Alex Berg, our scriptwriter. Music and sound design by Mark Phillips. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Our executive producer is June Cohen. Special thanks to Darren Triff, Sarah Sandman, Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Christina Gonzalez, Katie Clark Gray, and Adam Heiner. Visit shouldthisexist.com to find the transcript for this episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people find the show. <laughs>